0: Good morning, my name is Danielle Lamaro, and I'm a member here at Redemption and I will be reading today's scripture. I'll be reading from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses nine through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word for us today.
1: Although I was a Christian in high school, I wasn't a very mature Christian at that time. I think of myself as kind of like a sleeping Christian, so to speak. It wasn't until college that God really began to get a hold of my life, and I really started growing and maturing in my faith. I went to Biola University in Southern California back in the 80s, and uh, this was before Internet, um, you know, before cell phones. It was really hard at that time to find good preaching. You could hear good preaching on the radio, But, you know, you had to be there at that time when it was playing. You couldn't just download a podcast or something like that. So one of the greatest blessings of my life in college was I experienced a great church with some really excellent preachers and teachers. In fact, I began to love going to church. The church I attended had two services in the morning and one in the evening, and I was there three hours in the morning and an hour and a half at night. I just could not get enough of the the word in particular. I made great relationships as well, but it was the word of God that I just began to absorb in my life. I was blessed to be exposed to very gifted expository preachers and teachers, and they had a profound impact on my life. In fact, after I graduated from college, I drove back from, from L.A. to Indiana where my parents were living at the time, and my, pa- my grandparents lived in Colorado, and so I stopped and spent a few days with them on the way. And after I left, my, my grandfather called my parents and said, Greg has really changed. He's a different guy. And it was true. My speech, my actions, the direction of my life were greatly impacted by what I was hearing and learning from the gifted pastors and teachers in my church. And I look at this and I think that this was a great gift and blessing from Jesus in my life. This is consistent with what the Bible teaches us about how God grows us as believers. He gives us gifted pastors and teachers. We read this specifically in Ephesians 4, 8 through 13, when he, Christ, ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. What were those gifts? He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why did he give these gifts? For the equipping of the saints for the works of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ." Now, this work of Jesus giving these gifted pastors and teachers and prophets after his ascension is a continuation of a long tradition of God giving these kinds of gifted prophets and shepherds and teachers to his people, beginning way back with Moses. There's a very interesting description of Moses at the end of the Pentateuch. You may know that the Pentateuch is what we call the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Moses is is assumed to be the primary author of these first five books of the Bible. However, the last book, or the last chapter of the Pentateuch, chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, was clearly not written by Moses, but it was about Moses and how he was a gift to the people of God. Notice this, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but a couple of verses from Deuteronomy chapter 34. Notice it says, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. Obviously, Moses didn't write that. This was after his death. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. And this is what they said about Moses. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land. Now, as in our passage from Ecclesiastes today, as we finish the book of Ecclesiastes, these final words of the Pentateuch were written not by the primary author, Moses, but they were written about him. And this gives us some insight as to how the Bible has come together in its final form that we have today. And the final six verses of Ecclesiastes were probably not written by Kohelet, the author, the preacher, but they were written by one or more editors or compilers of Scripture. So we believe that God inspired both Kohelet and the one or ones who later put these inspired writings together in their final form. So the story of the Bible is a community story of God working in and through his gifted prophets and preachers, And also among his people as they collected these sayings into the final form that we have today, into one book. So today we notice that these final words of Ecclesiastes were not written by Kohelet, but about him. About who he was as a man and, and, and what kind of message he had. And if we look closely at these words this morning, we see that they speak even more broadly about the kind of people that God uses to teach his people and the kind of message that they bring. So let's look at these two big ideas in these final verses, the man and the message. And again, we're, sp- we're thinking about the kind of people in general that he uses and the kind of message that God gives. So notice, first of all, the man, the first thing about him was he was wise verse 9 besides being wise the preacher which is the word Kohelet also taught the people knowledge so very simple very profound very very uh, just sort of we, we, we see this he was wise he was first wise before he began to teach wisdom to other people he had to first be wise himself and so this is consistent with the kind of people that God uses character always trumps rhetoric We have to live the word first, then we can teach the word. And that order is very important. If there's hypocrisy in a person's life, someone is trying to teach things that they do not practice, their teaching will be ineffective. Jesus pointed this out about the Pharisees and their hypocrisy uh, time and time again, and this is consistent throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul as when he was writing to his uh, young minister, Timothy, he said this in 1 Timothy 4:12. First, he said to Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. That's first. After that comes verse 13. Then give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and teaching. So he has to be an example first. Then he's able to teach and preach. Preachers obviously must practice what they preach if they hope to be effective teachers. So not only was the preacher wise, but he was secondly an effective teacher. Notice the rest of verse 9 and 10. The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now, being a teacher doesn't always follow from being a wise person. Some are wise, but have no desire or ability to pass their wisdom on to others. To be an effective teacher requires hard work. Notice the verbs here. He, he was weighing, studying, arranging, writing with great care. There, there's diligence. There's searching, digging, meditating, arranging thoughts, thinking it through, refusing to surrender to sloth. The, the inspired teacher is not just shooting from the hip, saying what comes to the top of their mind, right? They've studied, they've worked hard to write words of truth. It says here, he uprightly wrote words of truth. And so, this kind of work is 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 what God blesses in a teacher and a preacher. We see this in the verse in the in the New Testament as well. First Timothy five seventeen it says, "The elders who rule well are are worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching." And in Second Timothy two fifteen, Paul tells Timothy, "Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed." accurately handling the word of truth. And that phrase, accurately handling the word of truth, parallels what we see here in Ecclesiastes at the end of verse 10. Uprightly he wrote words of truth. This, of course, is the emphasis and the highest priority, to be sure that what is being said is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But an effective teacher also seeks to find delightful words in their communication we all appreciate that right when we hear a, a a speaker or a preacher who's teaching us the truth but they're also kind of fun to listen to right and so that's what we see here in the in Kohala. the preacher sought to find words of delight And certainly we've seen that with Kohelet and Ecclesiastes. He has many intriguing and memorable sayings, things that stick in our mind, things that kind of shock us into action at times. Reminds us of the most skilled and delightful speaker of truth, of Jesus himself. So that's the man... Now, let's shift to looking at the message in verses 11 through 14. There's three things that describe the message itself, and then the fourth is actually the message, okay? So, so the first description of the message is that it's convicting in verse 11. It's convicting. We looked at this in our introductory sermon into Ecclesiastes months ago, but notice verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. Now, a goad is a very unfamiliar word to us today, but it was a shepherd's tool. It was a stick with a very sharp point at the end. Sometimes they would even put nails on the end, and it was used to prod cattle or livestock to get large animals to turn around or move in the direction that you wanted them to go. And so, the words of the wise are like these goads. They're motivating, they're influential. Sometimes they are painful, like like a surgeon's scalpel. These are the words that the Spirit of God uses to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We see this going to the beginning of the church when Peter preached the first sermon as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We see that his words had this effect on the people in Acts 2.37. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That's what the prod does. It's like, I have to change. Something in my life has to change. What should I do? And this is what we see about the Word of God in Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible is not meant to be a comfortable book. If you're reading it correctly, you should feel uncomfortably corrected and even rebuked at times. This is what we read in 2 Timothy 3.16 about the scripture. The scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So those who preach and teach the word need to be careful not to avoid its sharp edges. They have to take up the goad and use it. This is what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 2-4. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You see, a lot of people don't like The goad of Scripture, the truth that is sometimes painful, and they they will turn away from it. And some pastors fear this. And so they don't want to use the goad. They, they, They want to avoid poking people and making people feel uncomfortable. You see, and that that's a problem because people at some point they want to they want to get for themselves teachers who will only tell them good things, who will tickle their ears. They don't want to hear the sharp things of scripture. And so the faithful pastor has to do what Paul told Timothy here. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Now, exhortation is encouragement. There's a lot of encouragement in the Bible, and, and, and we want to make sure that we see that as well. But notice that two out of the three things that Paul told Timothy to do were reprove and rebuke. So we have to have all of these things together. We must do this or else the people will miss out on the benefit of the message. And that's the second thing we see here is that the message is stabilizing. It has a stabilizing effect on those who take it in. Notice the second part of verse 11. The words of the wise are like goats, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Nails firmly fixed. Now, this building right here has thousands of firmly fixed nails that are holding this building together. Nails are so useful. They're so difficult to get out when you're trying to demo something too, Right? And so nails represent that which is stabilizing, grounding. For the shepherd, he would use nails typically to stake his tent to the ground so that it wouldn't be uh, blown away by the wind. I remember several years ago, it's been about 30 years now, I'm really getting old, one of my best friends from college and I, we went on a very long uh, camping trip. We started in Los Angeles, we went up the West Coast, and then we traveled across the northern part of the United States, spent some time in Canada, and ended up in the Midwest. And we were camping along the way, and, and, and uh, somewhere in Wyoming, I believe it was, we stopped and we set up our camp for the night. We just had this little two-man pump t- pup tent, you know, it was just big enough for the two of us. And we set up on this nice little uh, hill, this little grassy hill. And little did we know that that night there was this raging uh, thunderstorm that came. And it was one of the best thunderstorms I've ever been in. I mean, I'm kind of weird. I really like lightning and thunder. (laughs) I feel like the power of God around me or something. But my friend was from San Jose. He had never been in a thunderstorm before. And so we woke up in the middle of the night and his eyes were like softballs. He was just scared out of his wits. He didn't know what was happening. But the rain was coming down. The wind was blowing. And it just felt like we were going to be picked up and carried away. But we weren't because we had firmly staked the tent into the ground. You see, and that's what these words of God, this is what the truth of God can do for a person. They can ground you. They can stay, stabilize you. This, in fact, is what is, the word is meant to do. Notice Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. This, these are the verses after what we read earlier about God giving gifted people to bring maturity to Uh, his people through their teaching. Notice what he says here. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. The Bible is not the latest trendy message. It's not my truth, it's not your truth, it is the truth. As we sang in our song before the message, uh, Speak, O Lord, truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. These are the the truths that are like well-driven nails. And as we are shaped by these firmly fixed truths, we become firmly fixed people who know right and wrong, truth and error, and we're not easily deceived by all the messages that we hear around us. This message has this eternal quality because it is given by one shepherd. And that takes us to the third point here is that the message is inspired. It's inspired. There's two things to look at here in particular. First of all, he says in verse 11 at the end that, the, they're like nails firmly fixed, are the collected sayings. The collected sayings. There's a reference here to this, this process of collecting these, these writings together. They were called the collected sayings. And this may be an intriguing reference to what we call the inspired scriptures. Going way back to Ecclesiastes times, this was already starting to happen where they were collecting these sayings together. As God sent prophets and wise men to Israel... Over time, there was a collection of books that were identified as sacred scripture. There was an identification of something divine, that the sources of these teachings was more than just human. And notice here he says, they are given by one shepherd. Now, some people think this refers to Kohelet, but I think I don't think so. In this, in, this, in this section here, it seems like this is referring to the shepherd of Israel, Yahweh. If you read the Old Testament, you see he's often described as the shepherd of Israel. And of course, as Carl read in our call to worship this morning, Jesus himself identifies himself as the good shepherd in John 10. He said, I am the good shepherd. And he said this, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. Even before Jesus came to earth, he was already speaking. The shepherd was giving his words. His voice was being heard by his people. And when we read the scripture, if we belong to Jesus, we hear the shepherd's voice speaking to us in all of scripture. They're given by one shepherd. Remember, God is described in Ecclesiastes as. The giver, he's the giver of of vanity, he's the giver of joy, and here he's the giver of these words, of these collected sayings, these convicting, eternally stabilizing words that have been collected over the centuries and now reside in what we have as the Bible, Now, there's an interesting warning here in verse 12, especially to the young of going beyond these divinely inspired inspired writings. Notice he says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, we live in the information age, of course, and if the editor of Ecclesiastes thought that there was no end to the books of his day, before the printing press, I doubt he could ever imagine a day like today. I googled this this week about there's about one million books published annually, and if you add self-publishing books, there's about four million published a year. That's over ten thousand books a day, every year, year after year. The, the amount of information and knowledge is overwhelming, and so obviously, if anyone ever tried to read all the books, it would be wearying to the body, right? Um, and so as <laughs> as we, as human beings, as we, we have all of this information and knowledge, we've started to specialize in order to become proficient at very specific areas of available knowledge. Now, certainly this warning is not talking about becoming knowledgeable in your field of expertise. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we, we read Solomon saying, Be wise in your work. And of course, I want my doctor to know the current and best mat- medical practices. I want my plumber and electrician and HVAC guy to know current building codes. I don't think that's what Solomon's talking about. The warning here seems to be about those things that we look to beyond Scripture for guidance in life. And so our understanding of the inspiration of Scripture teaches us that the Scriptures are adequate and sufficient for life. And godliness, going back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 again, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So in the Bible, we have all the information we need to know God and to know his salvation and and to know how to live for him and with him. So beware of looking for some other path to life than what is found in God's Word. The Bible is unique. It's the only divinely inspired book on earth. And as we understand its eternal truths, we are able to discern truth and error. And all other words and messages are to be judged by God's words. The Bible should have a place of priority in our hearts and our lives, and on a very practical level, this means that we should be meditating on the Bible more than we are meditating on other books or other messages. This is what Psalm 1 teaches us, teaches us, right? Blessed is, is the person who meditates on the, the laws of the Lord day and night. And so when we do that, when we soak our minds in Scripture we come to see and understand its message. And that leads us to the fourth and final point here. Again, this isn't about the message. This is the message. Fear God and keep his commandments. Notice verses, verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. Now this phrase, this is the whole duty of man in the Hebrew, it just reads, this is the all of man. This is why we are here. This answers questions like, what should I do with my life? What is life all about? What is the purpose of existence? And the God-inspired answer to these questions is, we are here to fear God and keep his commandments. For he will judge us for everything Secret or not. Now, I did a little Google search uh, about other ideas about what life is all about. And there's a lot of different messages out there. You've probably heard some of these, and I'm sure there are many more. But think about how this message compares with some of the other messages we hear. One, was, one that I found was, life is about realizing one's potentials and ideals. Or to live for my dreams. To matter, to make a difference, or to be a true, authentic human being, that's a big one today, I think. Here's an evolutionistic perspective, to survive, to evolve, to reproduce. (laughs) To do good, to do the right thing. And here's a Nietzschean one, to strive for power and superiority. And then another common one is, there is no point or purpose. In life, These are just a few of hundreds, maybe thousands of other ideas about life and mankind and, and what it's all about. We're being warned not to be taken in by these ideas. The eternal God has given us eternal truth that can give us eternal life. Now, as we close our message today and as we close the book of Ecclesiastes, I want to ask just a question about this message this morning of fear God and keep his commandments. How does this message compare with the gospel of Jesus? Are they the same or are they different? Is there something new in the New Testament? Now, my answer to that is no and yes. So, let me start with the no we do see the same message repeated in the New Testament of fear God and keep his commandments. Let me give you just a few examples. From Jesus in Luke twelve four and 5, he says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus was very clear. You should fear God. He will be your judge, and he has the authority to cast into hell. This is consistent with what Paul taught in several places, including 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So fearing God is not something that is abandoned in the New Testament. It is clearly taught. How about obeying God's commandments? Well, Jesus also taught that the essence of being his disciple is obedience to his commands. Notice Matthew 28, 19-20. We call this the Great Commission. It's very... It's a very well-known verse. It's Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he gave his final mission to his disciples, what they were to do, and, and this is what he said. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's the main verb. This is what we're to be about, making disciples. Well, how do we make disciples? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's what it means to make a disciple. You teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So a disciple of Jesus is someone who obeys his commands. But here's where we see a new emphasis in the New Testament. The motivation begins to shift from fear to love. Notice Jesus' words in John 15, 9, and we could look at many examples of this in the teachings of Jesus. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. He begins to talk about God as a father. That was something that the Old Testament didn't do. He begins to talk about God as a father who is loving us, and there's a way for us to love him back and remain in his love, and that's by keeping his commandments. John said this clearly in 1 John 5.3. He says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Commandments. But we begin to see, <clears throat> again, we begin to see a shift from the Old Testament of fear God and keep his commandments to love God and keep his commandments. I think this is the new development in the New Testament. And and John works this out in 1 John 4, 16 to 19. This could be a whole sermon right here, and, and there's a lot being said here, but try to follow along on John's logic, on his argument here. He says this we have come to know and have believed. The love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Again, there's a lot being said there, but part of the process of our sanctification is being perfected in the love of God, which means moving away from a primary motivation of fear of God to a motivation of love of God. You see, the fall, going back to Genesis chapter 3, the fall when we fell into sin and we fell under the judgment of God, it left us in a state of animosity towards God. And that that relationship led to a relationship of fear. Although God had lovingly created us in a state, in a place that was very good in Genesis chapter 1, and he warned us against pursuing the knowledge of evil in Genesis chapter 2, we still trusted Satan's words that called into question God's intentions for us and put us under God's judgment of evil. We, have, we always have to remember that Ecclesiastes, along with the Old Testament, was written B.C., right? Before Christ. And God's love was not as clearly seen at this time as it has now been seen in Christ God had revealed his love in creation and in his covenant with Abraham to bless all the families of the earth and in his deliverance of Israel from Egypt. However, through Moses came the law, a revelation of God's righteous standard and his hatred of sin and evil. We see this displayed in the flood and then in the vanity and evil and trouble under the sun that Kohelet describes in Ecclesiastes. Before Christ, the love of God is present but it is obscured by the wrath and judgment of God against sin and evil. So the book of Ecclesiastes was written before Christ and it's honest about the judgment of God upon mankind. Kohelet holds out the possibility of experiencing the love of God, primarily in experiencing his gift of joy, but he acknowledges that the creation has been subjected to futility, evil, and trouble. So the Old Testament message is fear God and keep his commandments. God is the righteous judge. And the proper response to him is fear of his judgment and obedience to him. As we have seen, this message is still true, even in the New Testament. But something new has been added in Christ. The love of God has been displayed in Christ like it had never been seen before We see this in Romans 5.8 and there could be many places we could look at to see this. But notice, God demonstrates, proves his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, in this confusing world of vanity under the sun with all the evil and trouble that is puzzling and incomprehensible to us, there is one thing we need never doubt again, that God loves us. This has been proven and demonstrated beyond all doubt in Christ's death on the cross. We may not, indeed we do not, understand most of the things that happen in life. But one thing is certain as we look at Jesus on the cross. God loves us. When we do not understand anything else, we can understand that And as we are reconciled to God through Jesus' death in our place, his love becomes clearer and clearer. And the more we know his love, the more we love him in response, and his perfect love casts out fear, and we are perfected in his love. And so the new covenant in Jesus' body and his blood advances us from fear God and to keep his commandments to love God, and keep his commandments. As fallen creatures under God's judgment, we begin, rightfully so, with fearing God. But as the redeemed of Jesus Christ, we end with loving God. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and this is what life is all about. Let's pray together as we close this morning. Lord, we're so thankful to be after Christ. We're so thankful for what you've done in him. We can see the truths of Ecclesiastes, and they they help us, Lord. They teach us. We can relate to them. But they leave us longing for something more, and that more we found in you We want to know you more, Lord. We want to be perfected in your love. And so we just lift up ourselves to you, both individually and as a church. We pray that you would continue to reveal to us the love that you have for us in Christ. And may that love perform its work within us so that we can, as John said, cast out fear of judgment as we are consumed by your love and we love you in return, and we live to obey you, to serve you, to walk with you, to be with you forever. And so we thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.